But uh, thank you for all for coming uh, to our second library talk. As you know, these library talks are kind of built for those who have an interest in academic life um, and uh, the life of the mind. And so we'd like to encourage that here at the library. And so uh, that's really the purpose of these library talks. And so this is actually uh, a new, a bit of a new frontier for us uh, this semester. We've always had uh, panelists in the past. And so now it's just a one-on-one -on -one interview with Dr. Moore. So first of all, thank you, Dr. Moore, for being here with us uh, today. Uh, let me introduce you, if you don't know who Dr. Moore is, um, he is the eighth president of the ERLC, or the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. Um, for the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, so I'm actually going to start a little bit uh, asking you about what you do there. And uh, since you've been there for a little over two years now, um, what has been the greatest challenge for you there, uh, the biggest surprise, and maybe the uh, biggest lesson you've learned? Well, uh, thank you, and thank you for uh, having me today. It's good to be with you. Uh, the ERLC basically does two things. Uh, we first equip churches and Christians to think through ethical issues from a gospel framework. And so that's providing resources on everything from uh, the persecuted church to abortion to orphan care to uh, end-of-life decisions, the, the full range of, of ethical questions that, that come forward for churches, marriage, family, all of those things. And then secondly, we speak from the churches, uh, especially to government and to media. And so we're uh, dealing with uh, Washington, uh, members of Congress, uh, president, uh, foreign leaders, and others on issues that are of concern to the church about uh, religious freedom, freedom of conscience, uh, persecuted church issues, the full range uh, of those questions. So we're working internally and externally. Um, I suppose uh, that uh, one of the one of the biggest surprises uh, that I've had as serving in this role has been the number of kind of Nicodemus conversations uh, that I have have had with people in very unlikely uh, situations in government and media, especially. There really there really are a lot of people who do have. Uh, deep questions about the Christian faith, spiritual uh, issues that they're grappling with, and some of them just don't have a, a, a place to turn on those things. And so a lot, of, um, a lot of really confidential conversations about, can I just talk to you about how do you, how do you know that Jesus is really alive uh, and so forth? That's, that's probably been the biggest uh, surprise that I've had. What about uh, challenges and uh, maybe a lesson? Well, I mean, the, 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 biggest, uh, the biggest set of challenges, I think, has to do with the fact that um, we have some people in church life who don't know or who don't yet realize how much the culture around them has changed. And so uh, they sometimes assume well, then that means that if we just keep doing what we're doing, except louder and angrier, we will turn this around. Or if we just have a, a good presidential cycle or two, we'll get things back uh, to the way that they, they were, uh, which is not the reality. And then there's another group of people who are aware of how the, the cultural framework has changed around them, and their response to that is, is panic. Uh, or withdrawal as though uh, this means that we're headed on some some steady decline into uh, into oblivion and into irrelevance when if you have a, a longer view of church history 
then you realize we have been in this place uh, before. And, and indeed, we are in, have been in this place for quite a while in other parts of the world um, for, for quite a while. But also because we ought to have confidence in the gospel. And if the gospel is really, if the gospel is not big enough to deal with the sort of society that we have around us, then we shouldn't believe it. But if it is, and if the gospel is what it says it is, then the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so we ought to have a, a sense of confidence going forward. So trying to, um, trying to get those who don't yet see how far things have changed and then those who are panicking over how far things have changed both into a common uh, set of gospel grit and confidence. That, that, can be, that can be a challenge, especially when you have people who are uh, often living in different parts of the country confronting different realities. Uh, there, there are some people who have been dealing with some issues for many, many years in their church context, others who are only now uh, starting to address them. So that's, that can be a challenge. All right. Thank you for that. Now we're, uh, we're going to transition into what we advertise, which is we're actually going to talk about uh, uh, Dr. Moore's book, Onward, a little bit. And we're actually going to start with the epigraph, where you uh, quote uh, Walker Percy. And you've written a few blog posts uh, on him. Some of your shorter writing has dealt with Walter Percy. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, uh, well, the first question I have is, has he impacted your approach to how you interact with culture? Mm -hmm. And if so, how? And then maybe tell us a little bit about Walker Percy, because uh, there may be several of us who don't know who Walker Percy is. Walker Percy was a medical doctor uh, who uh, came from a family that had had a long string of, of suicides. Uh, his father had committed suicide, and he was sent to live with his uncle, uh, who was a writer in Mississippi. Uh, his father's suicide sort of hung over him as a shadow uh, all of his life. He would talk about it all the time. And really, one of the, the remarkable things about his life is that he didn't commit suicide. This is someone who uh, became uh, a, a, a Catholic, Roman Catholic uh, believer. Uh, after he was an adult, took that very uh, seriously and wrote a series of novels and, uh, and essays that, that I think were really prophetic about the time in which, in which we live. Um, and so he, he dealt a lot with uh, bioethical uh, concerns, a lot with racial reconciliation concerns. And so he, during the, the civil rights movement, uh, he would talk about the fact that Christianity in the South wasn't Christian, it was Stoic. And he, he demonstrated why that, that was the case. And he was saying to churches, if you don't get this right on uh, what it means for Christianity to reconcile black and white people in the South, then you're simply going to turn into a lodge where people gather on Sundays and nobody pays that much attention to. I think he was exactly right about that. Um, and then he was speaking very prophetically on uh, the issue of abortion, really before many people were at the at the prophetic level. He wrote at the at the popular level. He wrote a um, a book uh, which was sort of a science fiction novel where he looked at uh, he looked at a future scenario where you have people being dehumanized by words. So you have preborn people called neonates. Uh, and then you have uh, elderly, disabled people called, and it's escaping me right now what it was called uh, in the novel, Thanatos Syndrome. But both of them were considered to be 
uh, lives that were not worth living. He wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times one time about the issue of abortion. And he said, um, I'm, my side is probably going to lose this argument. You're probably going to win, but you can't have it both ways. You're going to be told what you're doing. And that's sort of how he spent his life was was uh, was doing that. And so the epigraph in in onward is uh, is when Percy says in a fantastic collection of essays called Signposts in a Strange Land that the way that that the church serves the culture best is essentially by being the church, by holding on to our convictions and by holding on to our, our habits and practices and then modeling that for the outside world. All right. Well, why would you uh, tell someone to read Onward? What's the message that you really want them to uh, capture in your, when they read your book? Well, it largely goes back to the, the challenge question that you asked me um, a few minutes ago, is uh, how should Christians think about being in the world uh, in 21st century America in a way that isn't simply hearkening back to some caricature of 1950s America? And so I, I think there was, there is always a tendency for Christians to do one of two things. One of those things is to operate out of moralism uh, in the personal arena and a hyper-politicization in the social arena. And so everything becomes a matter of partisan warfare and victory and Christianity simply becomes the, the tribe from which it, it comes. That's, that's a problem, we've seen that happen. But there's another problem, which is an overreaction to that, that leads into a kind of withdrawal. And so, um, you know, just as, when, whenever I meet someone who says, we shouldn't really talk about the imperatives of scripture, the commands of scripture, let's just talk about the indicatives, who we are in Christ, and everything else will take care of itself. Nine times out of ten, that is someone who's coming out of a really rigid legalistic uh, background. Someone who says, I don't want to go back to that, to that list of rules and regulation. And whenever I meet somebody who wants to have a strict rule for everything, well, should Christians celebrate Halloween with their kids? Should Christians, what should they do about schooling? And they want everything to be defined out. Typically, that's somebody who has come out of a very chaotic uh, background. Their, their, their lives, when they were lost, were really disordered, and they have a longing for order because they don't want to go back there. I think the same thing happens in terms of the way that we engage culture. There's a tendency of some people who say, I don't want to turn into that that I saw in the past. And so the way that I do that is by going to the opposite extreme, which is to say I'm not going to even address these issues at all for fear of being uh, political or for fear of being a culture warrior or so forth. And what happens is that tends to make churches and Christians even more political because if you don't address uh, the social questions happening around you, you really are addressing them. There are, there are numerous things that I don't address because they don't matter. But if you're in 1845 Georgia and you preach the Bible about adultery and drunkenness and you don't say anything about slavery, then you are speaking to slavery because you're baptizing the status quo and saying this is not something that God is going to hold you accountable for at judgment. 
you're in 1925 Mississippi and you preach about uh, gambling and, and fornication and you don't say anything about lynching, then you are speaking to lynching. You're, you're blessing it uh, with your silence. And if you're in 2015 America and you're talking about uh, justice and you're not talking about abortion, then you are speaking to the issue of abortion by saying that unborn children's lives don't ultimately raise themselves up to the level of being addressed by the church in light of the gospel. And so I think the way that we have to go forward is to keep our priorities straight. So it's kingdom first, we're kingdom citizens before we're American citizens. But then we also recognize how God has called us to be present in our society in all of these multiple ways that we operate as neighbors, as uh, citizens, as in every other way. So that's, that's really what the book is about is to, to sort of get us thinking about a way to move forward in a world where Christianity is going to be increasingly strange to people. And I think that's good news for the church, not bad news for the church. Uh, early on in your book, uh, you say something that's different than what we may experience either from uh, what we see on Facebook, Twitter, uh, from relatives that we know who have been in the church. But you, um, usually they're saying these are the signs of the end times and very doomsday type uh, view of what's going on now. But you say on page uh, three of your book, I don't accept the narrative of progressive secularization, that is, that religion itself will inevitably decline as humanity evolves toward more and more consistent forms of rationalism. I think the future of the church is incandescently bright. Could you expound on what you mean by that and why you have yeah. that? Well, I mean, sometimes uh, people do take, uh, take a great sense of almost exhilarating alarm at narratives of decline. And one, one of the things that we can see in the history of the church is that every generation tends to think that. Uh, things are now completely falling apart and they've never been this way before. Um, and as people age, um, we, we typically start to think that about our, uh, about our, our lives uh, progressively as we move forward. Uh, but in reality, if you think about what Jesus is talking about, uh, when he says there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars, there will be earthquakes, uh, he, he gives an entire list of things that are going, to, are, are going to happen. Jesus is not saying keep a log of how often you have wars or rumors of wars or earthquakes. He's saying these are the birth pangs. They're not the end. These happen from the time of Jesus and the fall of Jerusalem all the way over to the end of the age. So Jesus says, don't be alarmed by these things. I've told you ahead of time that that will happen. And so you're going to face opposition in every single time and in every single culture. It's just a question of where that opposition is coming from. And so we're in a situation now where people are hiding behind secularization, behind sexual revolution, so forth. It's not a different reality than what we've had before. It's just a different bush that people are hiding behind. Uh, there, there was a time when many people were hiding in the vegetation behind a kind of uh, skin-deep religiosity uh, that, that, that assured them that things were okay, uh, but didn't recreate them. Now, people are hiding behind different things, but the fundamental human problem is the same. The voice of God comes into the garden and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam's response is, I am naked and I'm hiding myself. That's, that's always the same. 
the gospel is always the same in terms of being able to to reach those people. And I think that the news is especially good for us right now because what we see happening is the loss of cultural Christianity. Right now there's another Pew study coming out just today uh, about increasing secularization and and, uh, people who identify themselves as having no religious affiliation. Uh, We are not getting more atheists or more agnostics in American culture. We're getting more honest atheists and more honest agnostics in American culture because they don't have to nominally affiliate themselves with a church in order to be seen as good citizens and and good people. That's good news because it is much easier to engage with someone who is honest in his or her unbelief than someone who is reassured by some sort of a half gospel. And uh, I mean, Jesus told us in the parable of the sower and the soils, that uh, that the, the 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 seed that falls on that shallow ground and and has thorns and and weeds when persecution comes that sort of faith is seen to be uh, not real and not not saving. Well, if you're in a time when you can have that surface level sort of faith and you don't get persecution, you instead get uh, appro- you you get applause. Uh, that's a very dangerous place to be spiritually. So increasingly it's going to be the case where people who are identified with genuine, authentic evangelical Christianity are, are not going to be those people who are doing so to gain some sort of uh, status or to keep grandma quiet or what have you. Um, as a matter of fact, it's going to be a cost involved with identifying yourself with evangelical Christianity. I mean, I, I, there are people in... Uh, several major metropolitan areas right now who are worried about having the the, the names and, and photographs of their elders or deacons on the web, the church website because they're saying as they're working out there in uh, the secular world uh, many of them face a cost of people saying why would you be a part of this really uh, fringe sort of religion well that's going to increase Christianity always does best when it is distinctive uh, from the culture around us. And so I think what God may be doing is rescuing the church from ourselves, freeing us from that sort of cultural captivity and giving us an opportunity to articulate some things that we previously just assumed. And we didn't have to. I mean, it's easy to, for instance, talk about marriage when most of the people around you have the same aspiration for marriage that you have. When, when that's not the case, when you're having to actively differentiate and defend a Christian vision, then what do you have to do? You have to do exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing with the church at Ephesus, writing and saying, here's why this matters, because marriage isn't just a natural reality. It points to the union of Christ and his church. Uh, I think the church is going to have the opportunity to be that sort of body in the future. All right. Thank you for that. Um, Next question that I have for you, you spoke on this in the luncheon a little bit earlier today, um, but uh, you speak of a prophetic minority. What exactly do you mean by a prophetic minority? Well, by saying minority, um, what I don't mean is that Christians uh, in America at least are a persecuted small group of, of people, nor do I mean 
that Christians shouldn't be involved in forming majorities on on various uh, issues and questions uh, in the outside world. That's something that uh, minority groups of evangelical Christians have always done. Think of um, the early Baptists, for instance, uh, aligning themselves with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison for the sake of religious liberty. They didn't they didn't baptize Jefferson and Madison as uh, as as some sort of spiritual leaders. Uh, they were not. They would never have allowed either of them to teach Sunday school uh, in any of their churches uh, and wouldn't even have admitted them into membership. But they were willing to form an alliance on that issue. Say, we can agree with you on religious liberty. We don't agree with you cutting the New Testament apart. We can do that. Uh, But what, what it means to be a minority is to recognize that we have to have a persuasive voice to the culture around us, not a coercive voice. We don't have the power uh, to, to, to exert ourselves coercively uh, on the rest of society. And so, uh, for instance, uh, periodically I will have people who will say to me, you know, we have all of these businesses that are doing uh, things that we object to. Uh, so, for instance, you'll, you might have a religious liberty bill that comes up in a state, and the first group of people who are opposed to it and who are working against it are uh, a group of corporations and businesses. So why don't we do this? Why don't we organize our people to boycott uh, those businesses? Well, that is a majority mindset. Uh, just bracket for a minute whether or not that's the right way to go. Even if it is, that's the mindset of a group of people who think we represent the real America. Most people are like us. And so if we stop giving our money to this organization and start giving it to this organization, then we're going to be able to effect change. That's that's not the reality that we're living in in America, if it ever was. Instead, we have to be a persuasive people, which is where the prophetic comes in, the, the, the prophetic uh, calling that we've been given as those who are in Christ is to, as it was to Jeremiah, to tear down and to build up. And so we have a message to to speak uh, that we've been given, and we do that uh, persuasively. I mean, think of I think a good model for us um, is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. with the way that he spoke on the issue of civil rights. Uh, it would it would have been really easy for King simply to speak to the people who already agreed with him and to lambaste the people who disagreed with him. But that's not what he wanted to do. What he wanted to do was to change uh, minds and hearts. And so he would stand up and speak to the imagination of what a future could look like, not only for black people in America, but also for white people in America. I see the sons of slaves and the sons of slaveholders uh, joining hands and working together. And so we need to be the people who can present to the outside culture. This is a different way of, of living and being and relating to God and to one another and, and picturing that for them. So I think it means being a persuasive force. There was one um, phrase that I really liked um, that you said in your book that kind of relates to this. You mentioned... Uh, Warning and welcoming, and I think the other term was uh, weeping and to dream. Is that is that kind of what you mean by yeah, being persuasive? Yeah, too, because what we need to do is it, we don't need to avoid uh, questions of a call to repentance. Sometimes Christians will think um, we're going to alienate people if we talk about sin. Uh, in reality, people already have an awareness of sin. Uh, Romans two tells us that's embedded in the conscience. 
and one of the ways that, that Satan is active in the lives of people around us is through accusing them. And so, for instance, we, we mentioned the issue of abortion. If you don't mention abortion uh, on, on, in, in your preaching, I had one pastor who said, I don't really like to bring up abortion because we have, uh, we have people in our congregation, I'm sure, just looking at demographics who've had abortions, and I don't want to bring that back up uh, for them. In reality, though, if you don't address it, what you do is you are empowering Satan to accuse people. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, that woman who's had the abortion or that man who's paid for the abortion, the insinuation that they can get is this must be a sin that is so dark and unspeakable that you will not even mention it. Satan will use that to further accuse those people and he will use it to further deceive other people who will say, well, I don't need repentance from sin, uh, from this. I'm not being called to repentance uh, for sin because of that. that empowers the devil. We have to speak a word of warning. You, you will give an account before the judgment seat of Christ. But that's always balanced with a call to reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. So we don't ever simply call people to repentance. John the Baptist is speaking in very clear terms repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And at the same time, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have to constantly be doing both in our teaching, in our preaching, in our engagement with our, our neighbors around us in all of those ways. Right. Uh, you have an interesting phrase in chapter 5 where you talk about culture and you say the uh, first step to cultural influence is not to contextualize to the present, but to, to contextualize to the future. What, is, what does that mean, and how does, how do, what does that look like? Well, um, when I was a kid watching Sesame Street, uh, one of the interesting things about Sesame Street is that when Sesame Street starts, uh, starts broadcasting, there really wasn't a city street in America that looked like that, where you had white people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, all in the community, and all relating to one another as equals. Uh, that, 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 that simply wasn't the, the picture of America at the time. What Sesame Street wanted to do was to reach the imaginations and affections of children to give them a different picture. So that if you are a Latino kid in, uh, in a housing project in Miami, you really could see yourself as, as being a leader in a community that's multi-ethnic. If you're a, a white kid uh, in uh, Georgia watching this, you, you can really see yourself relating as equals with people of other ethnic uh, backgrounds. They weren't trying to say, this, these are the experiences that kids are having right now, let's reflect them. They're saying, let's show a different way. If we're people who are shaped and formed by the kingdom of God, what we need to be doing is picturing to the outside culture what the kingdom of God looks like in the way that we exercise our gifts, in the way that we forgive one another, in the way that we love one another, in the way that we, that we, that we serve, uh, all of those things picturing and pointing to the future kingdom of God. So we don't reflect the outside culture. We instead show the outside culture something that is very different from what they, they have seen. Uh, years ago, there was a um, there was an, a, a publisher, a Christian publisher, 
was trying to make a Bible to reach adolescent girls. And at the time, they were going around there looking to say, what do adolescent young women, what sort of media do they consume already? And at the time, that was fashion magazines. And so they said, let's design a fashion magazine for adolescent young women that is the text of the New Testament. And so you have the text of the New Testament, and then you have fashion tips, and you have uh, interviews with people, and you have all of those things. Uh, now, the intentions there were all really, really good. But the problem was, you're reading through the New Testament, and the, the message that is being sent, there are no overweight young women in here. There are no young women with acne in here. Uh, these are all women who meet the standards of beauty and attractiveness that are being set by the outside culture. And so the word of God is being channeled through this sort of implicit message that's being sent to young women that the supermodel shall inherit the, the earth in a way that, that contradicts the message of the scripture. Um, I think that, that very easily can happen in, in church life. Uh, think of the way uh, for instance, it's very easy in churches to ignore the elderly. Uh, we, tend to, we tend to focus our uh, church life on the people who, we, who are seen to be the most active and bringing the most into the congregation. So in some contexts, context, that would be college students. In other contexts, that's, that's young families, young professionals, and others. And it's very easy just to ignore the elderly or to see them simply as a group of people to have ministry expended on them rather than as people who have a ministry to expend on the rest of the body of Christ. Well, that takes an intentional detox uh, from the culture around you uh, in order to do that. And so I think one of the most important things that we have in terms of cultural engagement, in terms of, of witnessing to the coming kingdom of God, is not so much let's think through the questions that our people are debating on Facebook and equip them with a Christian worldview on those things. It's more about what are the questions that we're not asking at all because we don't even think to ask those things because they just seem normal to us. Those are the places that are the most dangerous because those are the places we've already given up and we don't even know it. Uh, what would be some of those places where you think we're, we're letting the culture dictate what, we've, what we preach on or the conversations or, uh, that we want to engage in? Um, and what type of culture, I guess, what type of questions are we not engaging that we should be? Well, I think um, one of those is, is, I mentioned it uh, in chapel this morning, is leadership. In terms, I think often we have a culturally defined set of expectations for leaders that are not uh, biblically defined and a culturally defined set of, of uh, measures of influence that are not uh, biblically defined. Where uh, 1 Corinthians 1, not many of you are wise, not many of you are noble, not many of you are powerful by this world's standards. Um, James 2, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. I think we miss that often. I think um, on questions of look at uh, the way that we have responded to uh, issues of divorce and remarriage. Now, I'm someone who believes that there are, uh, there are biblical grounds uh, for divorce and for remarriage uh, after divorce in those cases. But uh, even those who hold to exception cases like I do, we would have to say, 
uh, how rarely is it that when a couple is divorcing in our congregations, does the congregation step in uh, and intervene? I mean, uh, at least some of these cases, and perhaps most of these cases, you have an innocent party who is a relatively innocent party who is, uh, who is being sinned against, and that's simply not, uh, not addressed at all, either proactively in the way that we're preaching about divorce or in terms of the discipline of the congregation. We think of divorce simply in therapeutic terms. How do we help people to recuperate from divorce uh, rather than also in moral terms? It's just normal to us. We, we see it. And so we speak about that in a very different way than we would talk about polyamory, uh, for instance, uh, or, or, or adultery or something else. It's just become normal uh, to us. I think that's, that's a problem. All right. Towards the end of the book, uh, you write, the days ahead will probably be different than those faced by our parents and grandparents. We'll be forced to articulate things we once could only assume. You've mentioned that earlier. Um, that is nothing to wring our hands over. That is not a call to retreat or to surrender. And it's also no call to keep doing it the way that we've been doing it, except at a loud, louder volume. We may, be a strange, we may be seen as strange in American culture, if so, on, onward Christian stranger, which I really like that term because of, of the uh, reference to the old Christian hymn that we have. Um, but uh, two questions that I have for you. Uh, is uh, You stated a few times in this book, and even while we've been... Uh, since you've been here on campus, about um, that this is not a call to retreat. Um, I'm wondering if there are some who think that that type of approach is a call to retreat, and how would you address uh, what uh, their concerns for that? Or, um, you know, why, why do you keep uh, bringing that up, I guess? Well, because there is a, there is a temptation to retreat um, from, from those who would, who would think, um, that, who would see themselves in the place of Jesus before Pilate, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting, rightly so. But they don't understand that we're also standing in the place of Pilate. And so we have decisions that we're going to be making as neighbors, as citizens, as part of the, the government, as part of the social structure that are going to have to do with justice and liberty for future generations and we'll be held accountable for that. Um, yeah, there are some people who, anytime that you say that the kingdom of God takes the priority, if, if what they're accustomed to seeing is an evangelicalism that is defined first politically, um, and that, that uh, we see that happening in many sectors of evangelicalism uh, right now, the sort of people that would want to claim Glenn Beck as a Christian and John Hagee as a prophet. Uh, well, you, the, the only way you can do that is by replacing the gospel of Jesus Christ with something else and to say, well, because we agree on this set of issues politically, then that means that we're all part of the same body. That's a, that's a terribly uh, pitiful exchange to make. The devil offered that sort of exchange to Jesus. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Uh, Jesus could run the universe. He doesn't do that because he's not willing to run the universe without offering up blood uh, as a sacrifice for people. So if we keep gospel, if we keep the gospel as the priority, that doesn't mean that we don't engage these things, but the priority itself will cause some people to say, well, this is not, this is not the sort of, um, 
the sort of uh, activism that we have seen uh, in the past, so it must be retreat. I, um, I had uh, a secular reporter who heard me uh, speak uh, one time, and I was, I was speaking to Christians about seeking first the kingdom of God. And so the headline that the headline writer chose was, um, evangelical leader calls for pullback from politics, uh, culture wars. And my response to that was to say, I imagine if this headline writer had been around to hear Jesus, the headline would have been, uh, after Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, religious leader calls for pullback from nutrition agriculture. No, uh, it's, it's, a question of, it's a question of your priority, which then informs the way that you move forward. Okay, uh, so this is a library setting, so we have to ask you to um, maybe recommend some reading for us if we want to engage culture better. Um, what outside of your book? What what influenced you uh, in in your writing of this book, and what have you found helpful in your own walk to uh, to better engage culture? Well, I mean, there there are there are just too many things uh, to to mention. I think one a little book by Carl F. H. Henry uh, called "The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism." It's written in 1947, still completely applicable. Uh, to uh, what we're facing uh, right now. I would, I would really uh, commend that to, to you. Um, Augustine, uh, The City of God, you don't have to read all of it. There's a lot of it that you'll get bogged down in. So just as I don't recommend a new Christian uh, start with Leviticus, uh, I, I don't necessarily recommend that you read all of it, but read those major sections where Augustine is talking about um, how Christians are to live after the fall of the Roman Empire. I think that's, that's, really, that's really helpful. There's a book by a guy by the name of Jonathan Haidt called uh, The Righteous Mind uh, that is extremely helpful in thinking through how people think and make decisions on issues. Uh, and so he goes through and, 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 and demonstrates the different psychologies that are involved in the different sides of any particular culture war issue in a way that can help you to gain empathy for the other viewpoint as you're speaking to it. I think that's a, that's a really helpful book that I've benefited from and appreciate it.